following is Adam Polanski's talk, Brown Dirt UX, Creating Impact Without Permission, from the 2013 Information Architecture Summit. The 2013 IA Summit podcasts are brought to you by User Interface Engineering. Stay tuned after the podcast for a special offer from UIE. Yeah, I came in and I saw this table and I thought, you know, they really do have me corralled in this little bitty space, and so I've moved all the furniture over there. Now I'm going to spend the next 45 minutes probably just standing right here. Brown Dirt is an umbrella that I've been using to talk about user experience for quite a while now, I think probably about three years. And the reason that I've been doing that is I started to think about the different things people were talking about in the user experience community. And one of the terms that they use in sales is blue sky. And there's a lot of blue sky in the things that we talk about. And blue sky is good stuff. There are no laws of physics there. And that's where innovation starts, and it's the perfect place to dream. However, at some point, we have to come back to Earth, and we have to take these things we've been thinking about and talking about, and we've got to breathe life into them. And the dirt is where things grow. The dirt is where your shoes get messed up, it's muddy, it's sweaty, but the things that come from the dirt are amazing, and even more so by virtue of all of the forces that take place there and the work that we put into cultivating what we find in the dirt and what we build in the dirt. What we're going to talk about a little bit today is something I've called creating impact without permission. This is the real quick I love me slide. And as Andrew mentioned, I've kind of been banging around this for a while. And one of the things that has happened over the years is that I self-identify, I think, a little bit more as a bacon lover and a dad and a cook than I do as some of the other things that are up in that list. But yeah, so. If you're interested in some of the places I've been and done and stopped and screwed up, there's the list. So this is a question everybody here ought to ask themselves every day. When you open up your laptop, when you're checking your email, when you walk into uh, the place where you're working, whether you're a permanent employee or whether you're a contractor or whether you work from home, this is the thing that you need to do to position yourself each day. And that is how to do your best work. And one of the ways that you can do that is do a little bit of personal assessment. Ask yourself within the immediate project space and the people that you deal with or moving outside to a little bit larger group, what are you known for? Are you known as a go-to person? Are you a problem solver? Are you a pain in the ass? You can be both, by the way. Also, what are you known as? Are you your role? Are you the person who turns over the wireframes? Do you generate the comps? Are you somebody, again, who people go to to solve big problems? So this is a phrase that comes up an awful lot. And in fact, the majority of this presentation you're probably going to hear in bits and pieces in the collections of other presentations that you're going to hear between yesterday and tomorrow. You have to be a trusted advisor. And why is that? Anybody who's worked in an enterprise knows that there are a handful of forces at work, and there are a handful of people who make decisions. And those people who make those decisions don't always necessarily understand the value of user experience. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I bet at some point or another, everybody has sat there feeling like they were on the curb, having just been kicked there, muttering about the bastards who just don't get it. Yeah, you know you're out there. Jeffrey Gittimer is a guy who has made his name in sales, and he's been at this for quite a while. And he's got a handful of books out there. And this is the Little Teal Book of Trust, 
But this is a quote that he says, and I found it, I think it's fairly true, and I don't think anybody here would take exception to this. But the thing, particularly in the UX space, that gives us any latitude at all is when we've found a way to build a level of trust with the people around us and with the decision makers. We don't have some of the things that are kind of built in for some of the other disciplines. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But the reason that you need to be a trusted advisor is because people trust you with what they value. The only way they're going to trust you with what they value is if they have evidence that that trust is well placed. And so what we're going to get into in the course of this presentation are some things that you can do to gain that. We'll talk a little about the dynamics of how you gain it. But we're going to talk about some things that are very specific that you can do. So one thing that you could do without a whole lot of effort is look around you again. And this time, think about the people that you work closely with. Think about people, again, within the broader organization that you're either working for or with. Do yourself a little trust audit. How trusted are you by the people in the immediate group that you're working with? And you, know, you may not know for certain, but just try to estimate. Also look at that next layer out the bosses, the decision makers, how trusted are you at that level? How trusted do you need to be at that level? And that's the second question that you need to ask. And then after you've done that and you've tried to get some idea of where you feel like you're invested and people are invested in you, then you have to look at the sponsors. And this is where we start talking about those bastards. Those guys who get up every morning these assholes are trying to think of ways to be assholes to you and make your life miserable, right? They're not assholes, at least not all of them. And if you understand what it is that moves and motivates them, it becomes a little bit of a different question in terms of what you're going to offer them. So guess what? There's three things that rule every project. Time, cost, and quality. These are the constraints that exist in every case. And when I was talking before about some built-in advantages and disadvantages that some people have in these spaces, they have to do with these three guys. Because a while back, I started working on a method for qualifying effort within a project. And one of the things that I discovered then is that, by and large, not entirely, time is the province of development. Think about the circumstances in the projects where you've worked. Oftentimes, who do they go to first with the date in mind that they want something launched? And we've got you know nine weeks to get this done. We've got to get this stuff finished. Can you tell me how much time you're going to take to finish it? Well, part of it is you don't know what it is. So the more variables you have, the more you're going to pad it. So when they come to them with that nine-week timeline and they say, we've got this much time, how many weeks do you need? We need eight, and we've got a code freeze in two. Money is, for all intents and purposes, the province of the business. And I'm going to say the business in a very sweeping sense. These are the account managers, the line of business owners, the founders, the managers, the directors, the people who have essentially the decision capability, the decision-making capability within the different environments that you work. For all intents and purposes, the thing they care the most about is whether or not what you're building is going to make or save money. It's going to manage and improve the health of the organization that you're trying to support. Now, they will sit and talk to you about all the wonderfulness of UX. 
UX, we got to get us some of that. Can you bring us that great UX stuff? However, when they're having their annual review, or whether it's every year or every six months, whether they're going to their boss or whether they're going before a board of directors, the thing that they are going to have to justify and either celebrate or explain away is the reason why they didn't hit some number. Quality is essentially the province of user experience. Time and money cause pain. Pain that people want to make go away in a hurry. There is pain with bad quality, but it sits on a horizon that's a little bit further out here than the other two. That, folks, is the reason you wind up out on the curb. Logically, it's not necessarily going to make sense to people. Even to the bosses that you know, have told you about the importance and wonderfulness of UX. But what's going on at the same time is pain is happening. and They want that pain to go away and they have to make sacrifices somewhere and this is the hard sacrifice they make. And that's why you wind up muttering about these sons of bitches. So individual value oftentimes equals the avoidance of pain. For the business, value is a question of how success is measured for them. Not necessarily what the company says. If you're in the hotel business, you're talking about a great guest experience, you're talking about the things that lead up to the stay, during the stay, after the stay, and these are all the blue sky conversations that they have, but I will guarantee you, as sure as God made little green apples, the thing they care the most about is heads and beds. How many people are checking in and reserving rooms? But you don't talk about that. And the reason is, it's like asking somebody what they get paid. Oh, that's the dirty thing. We don't discuss that. But guess what? When it's time for the review, what do you think is going to be held over this guy's head? Or do you think this guy's going to hold over somebody else's head? Looking at that thing. Then here's your users. Remember them? What do they want? Now, what they want and what they need, we know, are not always the same thing. If you've ever spent any time in the usability lab, they may tell you one thing, but then you'll see evidence of something else. But from the business standpoint, how are we getting our users what they want versus what we want them to want? So anybody who's ever been to a big retail site and you've been assaulted with the banner ads and the deals and all the kind of stuff that's going up there, a lot of the times when you go to those apps or you go to those sites, that's part of the price of doing business. You have a level of tolerance for it. But in some cases, that can be pushed way overboard. The price of admission has just really gotten too high. I'm just looking for the big pens, for Christ's sake. So when you're talking to the marketing communications people about what's important, or you're talking in a retail environment, there may be the things that people are buying the most of, but that might not be the thing that brings the biggest margin. And so how do we push the thing that has the biggest margin, even if it's not necessarily what everyone wants? The reason no one's buying it is because nobody particularly wants it or somebody else does a better job at it. So this isn't to justify any of this, but it's to say understand that the person who's on the hook for what the user wants isn't on the hook for what they want. They're on the hook for what they want the user to want. Now the designers can be in one of two categories. Anybody who's ever worked in an ad agency? <laughs> Anybody who's worked in an ad agency is going to find that it's the art directors who have an awful lot of the power. So the art directors can be the bastards. 
but just as likely the creatives can be sitting out there on the curb with you. You need to take a little take a little assessment of where creative sits in all of this. Are they working with you to try to make good things happen? Or are they in a situation where they've been rather successful up to this point without your help? Thank you very much. And are you helping them or are you just annoying them? The developers, God bless them. These are the guys who oftentimes are the first ones who are asked that question. When can you have it? Um, well, the only problem is that they may provide an answer. And they're missing some of this important information. Again, with the lack of this, they're going to pad things up. But this is one of the built-in advantages that I was talking about. Typically, when development tells the business something, it's really not open to discussion or negotiation. If they tell you the sun's not going to rise, then don't bother getting out of bed in the morning because they have, for all intents and purposes, an opaque skill set. And so being the experts and the owners of that province, and by virtue of that, the clock, they have a built-in advantage. Now, that does not mean that the developers are the bastards. But I have certainly worked with some who are, who would much rather tell you something is not possible than try to figure out a solution. Because I've also been lucky enough to work with those guys who would look at something and say, you know, we don't do anything like that right now, but it would be really cool if we did. Well, give me a little time to think about that. Have those conversations. Find out which of these guys you're dealing with. So the question is, what can you do now? So this is the world as we've described it. This is the world as probably you all have described it at one time or another. Here I am. I've got all this great UX stuff to give. We've got users out there who need what we want, and we know how to make an experience that these people will never forget and fall in love with and take the best advantage of and continue to spend their money with us or continue to buy our services and pass it on to their grandkids who will be doing it on their glasses or on some kind of a chip embedded in their head, but it's going to stay forever. In terms of that space, you've heard that recounted a million times. So what I'm going to offer you isn't going to be anything new. I'm going to pull out a handful of stuff from our regular toolbox of things. But what I am going to do that's different is I'm going to talk about every one of these things in terms of how you can describe it to speak to the value that other folks have, not the value that you place on it. All these methods were chosen, and they're not the only ones out there. You're probably going to come up with some of your own as you go through this. Have a set of hallmarks. One is that they be simple. Two is that they be practical, they be relevant. Three is that they be actionable. So not just coming up and telling them the wonderfulness that you found, but telling them what to do about it, how to act on it. And you've got to get quick results. And there's a couple of reasons for that. And when I put this together, I was looking at this, and in some kind of an odd moment, as I was playing around with type and text and all that kind of stuff, I saw the first letters there. And like everybody needs another acronym, but I just thought SPAC was fun to say. <laughs> SPAC it. SPAC you. SPAC off. What do we got to do? We got to SPAC, damn it. So the first one is in heuristic analysis. 
And this, again, has been a tool that has been at our disposal for a long time. And heuristic analysis, in its simplest terms, is an expert review. The only difference between that and just going in and telling somebody what you think about an app or about a site is that you're using a set of guidelines. Probably the best known are Jacob Nielsen's 10 usability heuristics. There have been variations that have been added on over the years, and they have been reapplied for mobile and other environments. So there are some to choose from. But the idea is that there's an accepted guideline out there. Think about one of the problems that you have when you're trying to get an idea across, and it comes down to opinions. You have an opinion, the person across the table has an opinion, the opinion that wins usually belongs to what they call the hippo or the highest paid person in the organization. Work with that any way you want. But by going through and taking an application and applying a set of understood and accepted guidelines to it and providing some information along these guidelines, these are things recognition and recall as is another way of saying don't provide people information that they're going to need later on to do some other task, only now they've got to go back and find this information in order to do the task. Recovery from errors, that kind of thing. You have a way to give them now, to a certain degree, quantified view of either their app or their website or a competitor app or a competitor website. It doesn't just have to be you. You could get a couple of other people to do it and aggregate those findings. Remote usability testing. There are a couple of other presentations that have gone on where people have talked about using UserZoom or UserTesting.com. Optimal Workshops has some great tools, so there I'm getting my plug. Andrew, you out there? Okay, I have to bust his job. I'm taking the plug back. Just about all of them offer some freebies. Either a month, the ability to do some testing with a small group or something like that. Take advantage of that. Go out and use those things. Pick something within the app that you're working on or within the app that you're trying to build or maybe something even that a competitor is doing and go take a little bit closer look at some segment in there. You're not going to come back with responses that will give you three decimal points out in terms of comprehensive conclusiveness. But what you will get, there's Andrew. You missed your plug, man. So shut up and sit down. He talks too much, you know. But using tools like this and the freebies that they allow you, you can come back with an indication. Even if you only looked at 10 people doing a particular little task, if four or five of them show up to have done something similar, either to the good or to the bad, in terms of what your expectations are, you've got an indication that something probably deserves a closer look. Some of these will come back with the ability for you to capture on film those actual sessions and hear the person talking while they were either having a success with an app that you're talking about or a website or having trouble with it. Again, nothing stronger than getting the words to come from someone else's mouth. So keep this in mind. An expert is anybody who comes from more than 50 miles away. There are people in this room who are in many different areas of this grander space of user experience the experts in these fields. I guarantee to you, if they're sitting in an office, somebody who's sitting 10 feet away from them will ask them a question and suggest that they look outside for the answer. Guerrilla user research. So if Russ Unger's around here wandering around, he's talked about this quite a bit. These are all things that you haven't figured out yet are things that are going to happen in the evening and they're going to happen on the weekends. They're going to happen in the spare time. 
And the reason that you're doing all of these things is because you're not going to bother anybody with the details of how you're going to get this information. You're simply going to go do it. You're going to show up with everybody outcomes. If you haven't heard this theme several times today and tomorrow, you will. Rather than asking them, hey, can I go out and do this? I mean, it's going to be free and you have to justify all the time that you're going to spend on it because they're immediately going to start in on the trade-offs. Well, shit, if you're spending this many hours doing this, what hours am I losing on the other things that you're working on? And you know, now you're into a level of security that you don't even want to get into. So you're going to do these things in the dark under a flashlight and you're going to bring them back and what you're going to bring them are the results. Guerrilla user testing. Put together something or get something from an existing app. If you've got something that you can put together, even small tasks, and get out to Starbucks or go out on the street and ask some questions, even do some polling, uh, you can probably begin to see that these things start to overlap with other things that I've been talking about. Get some feedback. Once again, what you're getting is the voice of somebody who's not in the room, which is going to command a lot of attention. These are not necessarily all qualitative things, but what you're doing is speaking to potential roadblocks that might end up costing you later on. And you're finding these things out, at least in their minds, for free. Competitive audit. Everybody wants to know what their competitors are doing. And I've just gone through a few ways for you to go out and look at competitors and how they might be handling a particular transaction or selling a particular product. And if you go out and capture these processes and maybe stick them into, God forgive us, a spreadsheet, you know, maybe something along the lines of a consumer reports diagram where you've worked in some iconography there to show where certain things exist and where they don't, who does them well, who doesn't, you know, find some outlying examples of people who do things that are a little bit different. You have, within user experience, and this gets a little bit into the blue sky, you have a job to try to come up with something that's unique and ownable. And if you're just doing what somebody else did, hey, we're going to be just like Amazon or we want to do things somebody else is doing, they already own it, so you're late. Looking at the unique things they do so that you can try to find something unique that they don't do. And then this kind of feeds into all the others. Prototype something. There's a lot of tools out there. If you're doing mobile apps, there's Field Test, there's Envision, App Cooker, there's a whole bunch of stuff like that out there. Many of you are already familiar with Axure or Balsamic, stuff like that. You know, it's amazing the kind of response you can get when you can stick a device in someone's hand and say, here, just play with this. Or you can put something up on a screen and then walk through the interactions there. Even in Axure, I had a situation one time where I had to do a very, very dense content management selection system for pulling in particular images and text blocks and all this kind of stuff. And I built this thing in Axure, and I was getting ready for the tech review. And they had an hour and a half scheduled, and the project manager asked me, was that going to be enough? And I said, no, nah, you better make it about two and a half hours. These are usually pretty painful. We went in there, and 30 minutes later, we were done. We walked back into it a couple of times because there were a couple of things that they wanted to see and have re-explained. But 30 minutes later, they were done because I wasn't sitting there saying, OK, you're going to be looking at this thing. OK, and then imagine that you're going to tap right here. And then you're going to look at this, and now you see what changed here. Just the physicality of not having to go through that and being able to show people something that's sung and dance, even on a very remedial level. I mean, you can do this with drawings. You can do this with whiteboard sketches. Being able to do that made all the difference in the world to the level of conversation and got us moving forward. And if anybody ever 
heard about when Richard Saul Worman came to the summit a few years back. One of the statements that he made that resonated with me and continues to is that an IA's job is to create understanding. So if you're anybody who's been, you know, reading into lean or trying to put those processes into play or agile, it all falls right in line with that. If you can communicate an idea to the people in the room who need enough to be going on with and you can do it doing pantomime and animal sounds, you've just done a wireframe. If that was enough. On the other hand, you may have a client who just can't get their head wrapped around it and you wind up doing some pretty overwrought stuff with a lot of singing and dancing, but it did it because you assessed. You did it because you figured out that that was the lowest level of stuff I could do and still have them get it and have enough to be going on with. So none of these say don't do it, but what they do say is assess. Just don't decide because dogmatically you know you got to do wireframes, so we're going to do wireframes. Don't do it if you can do karaoke and get the idea across. So choose carefully and combine these things. I hope that as you're looking at these, you're thinking, wow, that's not all there is. Gosh, there's other tools out there and there's things I like. And hopefully you're looking at some of these tools that you've used for a long time and thinking of new ways to use them and new ways to carry on a conversation. Because what I've shown you here in each case is how these tools and how these processes, if you take them out of the way that you've been using them before and put them in the context of saving money down line, here's simply the outcome of what we're looking at as opposed to trying to get it built into the project. Like I said, if you ask permission, you're not going to get the bandwidth. But if you come back with a result of something, now you've got an opportunity to have a conversation. You've just given them something of value. And we trust people when they give us something of value. So just to recap a little bit, value is subjective. And value is often a reaction to pain and the avoidance of it. So when the business owners who are just not getting it are driving you nuts, it's probably, you might even be able to have the conversation directly and ask, okay, what's going to make this work for you? What's going to make your life good? Same thing to your client. How do I provide you the ammunition to go have the approval session with the person that I never get to talk to? How do I make you a hero? Acknowledge that bias. There's a story I like to tell way back before there were computers in the mix. I was what they called a commercial artist, which meant I drew. And I also fancied myself a creative in a broader sense, and so I had a portfolio. And when I would show people my stuff, if they had any kind of creative bent at all, they would look at it and ask me questions like, wow, where'd you get the inspiration for that? Or that was an odd choice for your medium. Why did you go with that? Or what brought you to that idea? Or what made you come up with this thing? But all these sort of qualitative questions about you know, the circumstances or the design. But if I showed work to somebody who didn't have that artistic bent, I would get the same question every single time, which is, how long did that take? <laughs> and for years, mentally, I would just roll my eyes, go sit down on my curb. Fuckers just don't get it. <laughs> and, you know, those guys have been lining up for years. That's happened again and again and again and again. And then after I went and got a couple of business degrees, and I found myself you know, both directing and managing people in the UX space and having to spend a lot of time with these guys. One of the things as I began to see this level of frustration as it was building up, 
I could see their point of view, but at the same time I could see these guys' point of view as well. And as I said, if people are really driven by trying to make sure that things don't hurt, it's going to make them do things. It might not be the compass heading they want to follow, but it's the one that feels the most urgent, and they're going to do that. And so all of a sudden, these guys weren't assholes anymore. They didn't get it, that's true. But what they did get was something else. And so I had to find a way to communicate these things into some method that made sense. The world works when you've got A plus B equals C. Well, in UX, A plus something else plus something else plus something else equals E, which kicks the shit out of C. But I can't tell you by how much. And those something else's are things that I like to call, if anybody here is a fan of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the Philosopher's Guild busts in and they demand rigidly defined areas of doubt and uncertainty. Those are our rigidly defined areas of doubt and uncertainty. You're going to have to leave us alone in these spaces. We can agree on some gateways, but you're going to have to leave us alone because there's an assessment that has to go on. We've got to look at what's happening there. We've got to come back then and tell you what we're going to do about what we found. Then we've set an expectation for you for the next gateway. But once we've crossed that way, we're into a new space where there's another level of discovery, and we need to be able to find that out. The only way that you're going to get the chance to do that is to be able to be trusted. And one way that you can be trusted is to bring people something of value. Because at the end of the day, it's what we're talking about. That's how they're going to think about it, is how it's going to affect scope. Trusted advisors make pain go away. Any questions? Wow. <laughs> First question gets a free book. Yes, ma'am. So the areas of uncertainty that we want to be able to quantify, mm -hmm. I come from a finance background, too, and I'm kind of thinking, how is it that we can sort of quantify it as much as possible? Like, give them an equation or something of ROI. I have a couple of slides, but they're kind of outdated, some research that's outdated. But some sort of way to quantify the value of different parts of our process that we incorporate. Mm -hmm. I'm looking for facts, and I'm looking for you know, some sort of equation or some sort of way to communicate that. Is there a way that you do that? To have tell that? Me and, yeah, tell me or and is we'll that impossible? Tell me, and we'll both know. No, I don't mean to be dismissive about that. That's the wicked problem, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And what I'm offering here is to say that you're not going to take design and you're not going to break it down into an algorithm. And what people are asking us to do is to tell them in advance how many decimal points we're going to improve the business or improve whatever we're working on. And the thing is, we can't. All that we really can tell them is that we know for certain that when you take user experience into consideration, things are going to be better. If you ignore it, things will not be so good. There's a little bit of an overlap in that Venn diagram that dumb luck accounts for. But what you often get stuck doing, they won't even ask you how much better will it be. You're put in the position of having to try to quantify how bad it'll be, which you can't do. You're trying to prove a negative. And so what I'm presenting here is, rather than try to go directly at that equation, to find some other way to appeal 
to the people whose trust I need, who normally would need that equation. But what I want them to do instead, I don't want to sit down and do math with them. What I want them to do is trust me. And so I've offered these up as these different methods as ways to give a little present to the people that you're working with. It's not going to happen overnight. You may have to do a few of them. Do it a few times before they start to say, hey, you know, this guy comes up with some pretty good stuff. But this girl's invented some pretty neat stuff for us, and we didn't even ask her. Then when you do come back and ask for the rigidly defined areas of doubt and uncertainty, and you may have to go up that hill a few times, too, at some point you're going, hopefully, to find that you've gained a level of trust and you're going to be given the latitude that you need to deliver something else cool without them having to worry about all the details in so you never even just bother talking ROI or numbers? I have tried. Ever. I have tried. I've come up with some beautiful, beautiful math. It's fiction five minutes after you embark on it. Thank you. The quantitative issue that you were just addressing was mm -hmm. I don't know that you're in good shape. I think you're just deferring bad shape. Well, you might be. Yeah. You might be, but it may be deferred for such a distance mm -hmm. that it doesn't matter. Can be, yeah. Right. Nonetheless, uh, the point that I wanted to make was that Jaco uh, Newland and Martin, Martin Van Loon yeah. said quantitative works for them. I know. In fact, I even helped him work that presentation together. <laughs> And that was what I was saying at the beginning of this, that you're going to find bits and pieces of some of the things I'm talking about. And some of it's going to run counter. I think the process that they're talking about is, I don't know that it quite will hold up in terms of its truth, but I think it's a great trust-getting effect. And I see Martin sitting back there, so I don't feel like I'm flying in the face of what they talked about, because I think they're talking about circumstances that work for them. And I'm not saying that this is going to work for everybody every time. There are bastards out there. And there are some people who will never settle for anything other than an algorithm. And that algorithm, you know, you're forced to find them something. But unfortunately, in the early stages of these things, there's always so many variables, things that we just flat don't know. So I feel pretty safe saying more often than not, it's either going to become fiction unless you're being put in a situation where you know you're going to get to reassess. Does that make sense? The fact of the matter is, in any kind of architectural endeavor, mm -hmm. you really do need to reassess as you learn more about the issue. Yeah, and it's weird how often we don't get that chance. Sometimes we do, sometimes, sometimes we, we do, sometimes we don't. It's like prototypes being put into production. Right. Any other questions? I would also recommend everybody read Cost Justifying Usability, because mm -hmm. you can take those principles definitely and apply them to all this. What I was going to ask is... Um, so you heard that kind of a throwaway sort of counter of my whole thing. He's a friend of mine, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm, I'm just saying that if you have to, because mm -hmm. I've done it, if you have to do it, cost-justifying usability is the best source of like information right. to go into that situation. Yeah. But and, I'm, and I'm, try, try, I'm not trying to tell anybody not to do this. I'm not trying to tell anybody. There's certainly people. There's a book called, out there called Cost-Justifying Anything. And I don't have the author's name here in front of me. But if it really is a question of where you feel like your efforts are best spent. And I think for, certainly in my case, and I think in the case of many other people, their efforts are probably best spent doing the thing they do well instead of trying to turn themselves into an NBA in order to win an argument. Agreed. I like what you're, what you're talking about in terms of, um, you know, 
do some work on the front end, you know, almost spec work mm -hmm. a lot of times to get some of this stuff through. What I wanted to know is for you as an individual in these situations or even part of a small team, mm -hmm. how do you know personally when that spec work is not worth it? I mean, mm -hmm. what are some things that you look for that say, you know, this is either going to be worth it, I need to pull some all-nighters this week and put all this together, or... Well, and that was why I hold these out as things that need to happen fairly quickly. So that if you're going to fail, you fail quickly. Everything that I put up here is something that you can get your results essentially within a week, certainly in some cases a day. And whether you know it's worth it is whether or not they take any of the things you bring them on board. Yeah. Well, like I said, if, if it's taking you more than a week, that's one. And that was why I selected these particular things, is that they were things that you could do fairly quickly. So yeah, probably not in advance, but you're going to get from point A to point B, and you're going to know whether it worked pretty quickly or not. And so you just what you really find out is don't do that again, at least not with this person. Yes, ma'am. To follow on with your response to this gentleman's question about you don't usually get that chance to reassess. But if you can do some successes early and build that trust, doesn't that would that often get you those more opportunities? Oh, yeah, I was totally. Or is that time factor going to mm -hmm. bump up against you? And, I, and then you don't have that luxury of time. Yeah, I'll give you the, the most comprehensive answer I can give you, which is it depends. Uh, <laughs> there, I got it in. Anybody who's playing buzzword bingo, did anybody win yet? Yeah, again, it comes down to the individual. It comes down to the project constraints themselves. Sometimes time is smack at the driver's seat. I'm in one of those right now. And like I said, sometimes it takes a few offerings to the altar to get to the point that they give you the latitude that you need. And yeah, that's really kind of what you're aiming for, is to build trust to the point that when you do come back and say, wow, some things have changed and we need to look at this a little bit differently, they don't just tap their watch and say, yeah, I'm sure there are, but we don't have time for that shit. So if you do still have questions, anybody who's known me for more than five minutes knows that I will talk about this ad nauseum at just about the drop of a hat. So thank you. The IA Summit Podcasts are sponsored by the UIE Virtual Seminar Program with scores of online seminars your team can access on demand. For free access to a virtual seminar, visit uie.com slash IAS13. And you can find the rest of the IA Summit Podcasts at library.iasummit.org.